One Man Brand Radio with Ray Sagern, the radio show for entrepreneurs and business owners, leaders and dreamers. Learn more at newsradioklbj.com and onemanbrandradio.com. Now, here's Ray. One Man Brand Radio is the radio show for entrepreneurs, for business owners and CEOs, managers and leaders, and, and all of you out there who've decided to become your own boss. We've got a Facebook page. You can find links to all of our previous episodes and podcasts. We're on Twitter and Instagram, at One Man Brand Radio, and our website, where it's all archived, onemanbrandradio.com. And it's my old friend, Chris Hyams, who's the president of Indeed.com. Chris, welcome to One Man Brand Radio. Thanks for having me, Ray. Great to be here. So obviously our history goes back. I was up the hall doing a chill music Sunday morning radio show and and Emmis at the time, you know, where radio was in 2006, 7, 8, and 9, uh, uh, different, radio was in a different place and, and I really got the opportunity to do this sort of free form thing. It was not just the music. I, I could play whatever music I wanted, but for a while anyway, for a couple of years, you could go back to the archives and have this, this great collection of filmmakers and musicians and performers and artists and it was just it was a fantastic time and that's where we first met because I was a fan of your company B-Side so tell the story of that and maybe what you learned as an entrepreneur from that experience sure the idea behind B-Side was really simple which was that there were tens of thousands of great films being made that never could reach an audience because of the economic structure of the film business um, which favored like the music business the big films kind Mm -hmm. of like the the big acts the, the focus really was on film festivals. There are 4,000 film festivals around the world. And what we wanted to do was have the audience to have some kind of say in which are the films that uh, had, had some potential market because those decisions had been made by a couple of film executives who'd go around to the same film festivals and make their own decisions. This is the precursor of the, of the data stuff we were talking about on the exactly. whole show. Okay, good. And, uh, and a lot of this stuff now in 2016 is obvious. In 2005, people gave me blank stares when I talked about the, the wisdom of the crowds and letting you know, mm-hmm. audience members make decisions. Sure. Uh, I think this stuff is all kind of obvious now. But so the idea is we partnered with film festivals. We built a platform for film festivals to market their, their festivals, the films, scheduling, ticketing, um, allowed people to watch trailers and then essentially review the film so they could uh, rate and review the films they could get recommendations of the films during the festivals and what we were doing is really building a market research firm that was collecting data at hundreds of festivals around the world around which the films that audiences were aware of interested Mm -hmm. in and what they loved and what they didn't love the original idea was that we were going to then take this data and sell it to film companies that, of course, would be interested in of real empirical data. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Turns out they were not interested not so at all much, in huh? real empirical data. Okay. So what we had to do then was essentially say, okay, well, let's. how can we use this data ourselves? So we ended up building our own film distribution business. That was mm-hmm. the, the first pivot. And really, the idea all came from if you've read the book or seen the movie Moneyball, that was the idea. I'd, I was working mm-hmm. at another tech company here in Austin. I uh, read Moneyball on a, a long business trip and came back and quit my job and said, I'm going to go do, <laughs> do this for the film yeah. business. Um, and the story of Moneyball is really the same story that happened to us, which is that this guy, Bill James, came up with these great mathematical models for how to make decisions in baseball, spent 20 years trying to sell it to Major League Baseball. No one was interested. Mm-hmm. And until Billy Bean came around and had his own team and used that data to make decisions, did anything actually happen? Mm-hmm. So phase two was build our own film distribution business. It was an amazing experience because we found that, yes, the data actually did indicate what films audiences were interested in. In particular, we were able to do amazing work with documentaries about music, where there was huge built-in interest and passion from fans. And we built essentially a crowdsourced model where people could Mm -hmm. market films on their own. They could build their own screenings. 
be able to crowdsource the distribution of films by hosting mm-hmm. their own screenings, inviting people, and really doing the work to market the films that then later they could go ahead and sell DVDs and make money from. Tell me the story about how you, you stumbled onto Visioneers, which was an early film of a burgeoning uh, actor named Zach Galifianakis, right? This is obviously pre-Hangover, uh, and right as he's starting to blow up, you find yourself sort of the caretaker of this this interesting little film. Yeah, so that that was a you know a perfect success story. That film premiered at the Austin Film Festival. Like a lot of small films, it got I think the 10 a.m. Tuesday slot. Um, <laughs> yeah. But the people who were there in the Paramount Theater when that film first showed lost their minds. It's a, it's a somebody described the movie as uh, Office Space meets 1984. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of a dystopian future sure. office. Little Brazil very, splashed in there. Yeah, yeah very yeah. dark comedy with this guy who was a, a stand-up comic who was about to blow up because Hangover came out about mm-hmm. three months afterwards. Mm-hmm. We looked at the data, actually saw the data from the first one and ran to the next screening to mm-hmm. go see the film, met the filmmakers, and very quickly they got the vision, which is this film is not going to get wide release in you know in the Regal theaters, but a bunch of people would be interested. And we were able to launch the film. Zach helped out a lot, which was really great as he started to get some success and did mm-hmm. a lot of promotion uh, for it. We ended up hosting about 400 screenings of the film, and uh, and the DVD ended up being released and, and doing... You you know, reaching the right audience that it never would have been able to reach if it was left to it on its own. Get you out of here on this one. What's your own particular spin on the generic question? Advice for up and coming entrepreneurs, people who are becoming business owners for the first time. It's a big part of what uh, of the audience I'm looking to reach with the show. That people who are making that entrepreneurial leap for the very first time. Yeah. So having been someone who started his own business, which then did not succeed, so we had a great six year run, but at the end of the day you know, ran out of money and, and, and sold the company. The lesson that I got from it and the way that I've explained it to people since then is that to be an entrepreneur, I think you have to be, there's, there's sort of two qualities that are really important. You have to be equal parts Don Quixote and Mr. Spock. The Don Quixote part is you have to wake up every morning and believe that everyone else is wrong because mm-hmm. no, no entrepreneur is doing something that, you know, has already been done a thousand times. You're trying to do something new and unique, either try to take another piece of a market that exists or try to create something new. Mm-hmm. And you have to be able to put on that hat and just ignore all of the naysayers and still wake up every morning and, and go mm-hmm. tilt at those windmills. Then, at least once a week... My, or, by, by the way, my business partner, Roy H. Williams, is going to love that particular part of it. Now, what about the Mr. Spock part? So, you know, at once a month or maybe once a week, you then have to take that hat off and put the Mr. Spock hat on, which is you have to be completely dispassionate, unemotional, and logical, and look at the facts and say, is this thing working? Is it not? Is there something that we can do to change that? And you'll find a lot of entrepreneurs who tend to be all Mr. Spock or all uh, Don Quixote. They tend to either be extremely conservative or or crazy aggressive and, and get into a lot of trouble. So a good partnership, sometimes if you have two people working you together, one, one you can get one of each, or uh-huh. the rare person can be both. It's really important to be able to know when things are working and when you need to, to shift gears, but you can't shift gears every five minutes. So mm-hmm. I think those qualities are both important. Get comfortable with them and recognize the fact that um, you can't do both at the same time. Mm-hmm. When you're all in, you have to be all in. When you're looking at the facts, you have to look at the facts. And not all of these businesses work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, most startups do fail. But I, everything that I learned in the six years of trying to build B-Side is what made me able to take the, the job when I started at, at Indeed and, uh, and to be able to, to help um, this business grow over the last six years. So as we talk about Indeed.com, aggregator, I guess, is the term, right? It, it, it pulls information in the same way Google does for job seekers, yes? Right. So that was the idea that Ronnie and Paul hit on was, 
what needed to be done was just bring the model of search directly to the job space. So instead of having people come and post those jobs, we now crawl 200,000 different sources mm -hmm. all over the world, uh, more than 16 million jobs on the site. So instead of just the jobs that someone placed there, it's all the jobs that we can find anywhere in the world, bring it all into one place. So from a job seeker perspective, you do a single search, you can find every job that's available. From an employer perspective, the other insight was to bring the what is now well understood pay for performance model directly to online jobs that didn't exist before. So an employer all of the jobs that are on Indeed, they're on for free always. And mm -hmm. if an employer wants more job applicants, they can pay for additional uh, promotional placement essentially on the site. And only if someone actually clicks on their job and comes to their site, do they pay. So we're aligned with employers. They pay only for the applicants they get. And from a job seeker perspective, all the jobs are in one place. Our guest this morning is Chris Himes. He's the president of Indeed.com, which is the world's largest job search engine. Yes? Yep. More people find their jobs around the world on Indeed than anywhere else. So getting back to Indeed University. So if I understand this right, you had a class of 15 and a class of 16. Who was the bright, shining star of the first class that you had? So one of the most surprising ones to come out in 2015 is a new product we have called JobSpotter. JobSpotter is a mobile application, Android or iOS. You can go download it today in the App Store that allows anyone essentially to post a job to Indeed by walking around and taking a picture of a help wanted sign. The team basically looked at- Sign in the window, marquee, uh, yep. on, a, on a community bulletin board, could anywhere. Be, could be Joe's Pizza, could be a retail shop. One uh -huh. of the, the insights the team had is that there's millions of jobs that are not online. And uh -huh. Indeed can help people find jobs online, but there's tons and tons of jobs around the world that are not, not online anywhere. And so they had this idea, which is that if you could take a picture of a help wanted sign and put that up on Indeed, then job seekers would be interested. So Chris, I think JobSpotter, it, it's a game changer, it seems like. It's, it's really fascinating, and, and I think it kind of harkens back to the innovation of moving forward. Because I, I let's talk, let, and, and let me just, the result of it is that we now have, since we launched in April, more than 500,000 jobs have been posted by more than 100,000 people all over the US. And in fact, it's the number two most popular source of jobs on Indeed in the entire US and number four worldwide. And so this is an idea that you know three 22-year-olds came up with and has been the biggest innovation in our ability to find new jobs. And I have to say uh, that the most important learning for me coming out of this is that I told these guys when they pitched it that it was a terrible idea and it wouldn't work. And that was because we had actually had a bunch of really smart people with MBAs who'd done a bunch of research, and they talked to employers, and they put together spreadsheets and models, and they had demonstrated very, very clearly there's no way that this could work. We couldn't scale it. It was going to be too expensive, and no one, no one cared about it. And when I gave this feedback to the team, they said, thank you for sharing, and went ahead and did it anyway. <laughs> and so the, the most important lesson in the way that we've been yeah. thinking about it ever since is that you know, the, the greatest enemy to innovation is certainty, mm. that when a company starts to think that we know better because mm. we've been doing this longer and you start to shut down new ideas, that's basically when innovation dies. And really, the smartest thing I did last summer was to not say no to these new ideas. And that's the most important aspect of entrepreneurialism and innovation is to not say no to new ideas. Talk to me about Indeed University. And as I see it, there's a ton of companies that the iconic one that comes to mind is Hamburger University for McDonald's mm. back in the day. And 
I guess franchises historically have used that term to bring in franchisees to immerse them, indoctrinate them in company culture. It means something entirely different at Indeed.com. Yeah, interestingly, the goal is exactly the same. So really on the surface, this is a program to help onboard our new product and engineering hires. So we hire from colleges all around the world. Indeed University takes all of our new college hires from the engineering product and, and marketing as well from our different engineering locations. We've got offices here in Austin, but also San Francisco, Seattle, Tokyo, and Hyderabad bring all the students here together, and they're in Austin for 12 weeks during the summer. It's almost like, here's the deep end of the pool, let's let's see what you got, right? Yeah, they get, they get a few days of intro to here are problems that face job seekers that we know of, here are problems that face employers, here's what the HR space as a whole looks like, now go ahead and come up with your own ideas. And it's really completely driven by the new hires. And so uh, last- So how long? How, how, when did you start this? We started in the summer 2015. Okay. Uh, we had 55 new hires that summer. They launched 11 new startups, and every single one of those was an idea that, that they had. They formed teams. We actually, the most important thing is that none of, while the executive team was involved and they came and pitched their ideas and we gave their our feedback to them, no one sat in judgment to either endorse or cut a project. The only thing required for a project to go through was that whoever was pitching it had to convince two other people to spend the summer with them. And so the, the currency was time or rather than money, although we did give them a marketing budget. Mm-hmm. We gave them support from the entire company and anything they needed. But they came up with their own ideas. They launched these products, and we just sat with them every single week and said, really, it was all around the indoctrination was as a business we live and die by data. So we are completely data-driven. We use data to make every single decision in the company. And the indoctrination was to teach them how to use data to make decisions. So I basically individually met with every single product team every single week for the 12 weeks of the program and asked them at 10 minutes and asked them three questions. What data did you collect last week? What decisions did you make because of that data? And what are you doing next week? And that was the process with for how they learned. And There's a lot of business owners across a lot of categories that could, could use that advice. Absolutely. And, yeah. and using data to make decisions is, is really the fundamental thing that we do as a business. And, and if I have any advice to, to anyone, it's what data do you have and how can you use that to make decisions? And if you don't have the data, how can you go get it? My favorite saying with my clients right now is, in God we trust, everyone else should bring their data. <laughs> so. Yeah, no, no, that's fair. And, and it, you know, our, our version of that is um, if you can measure it, you can improve it. Mm-hmm. And you know the corollary to that is if you can't measure something, there's absolutely no way that you can improve it. So we, as an, as an organization, we're constantly experimenting. We have mm-hmm. more than 450 A-B tests running um, nice. all over the site right now at any point in time. And our data is actually really clear. 70% of the experiments we run fail, meaning that they fail to improve some metric. They're either neutral nice. or negative, which means that most of the time, your ideas are wrong. And it's a really humbling but important lesson to learn. Chris, we were talking about Indeed University. We talked specifically about JobSpotter, the program. That's so fascinating that all the powers that be said, no, this won't work. But your team of upstarts pushed through, and it's been this game changer. It's been a, it's been a truly forging an innovation model of your company that really almost obliterates the the borders of what you were before, right? Absolutely. And and. That's just the success we've seen here in the U.S. right now. When we think about places like Southeast Asia or India, where there's way more jobs that are not online than the ones that are online, this could have a huge impact globally and how people find jobs. You know, one of the things that we have that is unique as a company is a view into the global labor market from both sides. So there's 
you know, pretty much every government and most economists have a view of one side of the labor story. The, you know, the government typically has uh, information on joblessness because people file those claims. They have information on employment because people pay taxes. What we have is this view of demand also. And we actually have uh, a chief economist um, who's been uh, uh, who just started recently. We had another one for the last few years, where we have all this data where they can look at external labor data and then look at what we have, which is what are people looking for? And because one of the things that's really most important in economics is not just the you know demand. You need the supply thing to understand where the mismatch is. When we look at joblessness, or in particular underemployment, which is one of the big problems. We, you know, we've had this, this recovery that has been slower than I think everyone would have liked to see in, in the U.S. economy. A lot of it has to do with there are a lot of new jobs that are coming available, mm-hmm. and you don't necessarily have the match of skills for those jobs. There's been a huge growth in, in the labor market in a need for people with STEM backgrounds. We're not producing STEM students quickly enough. And so trying to understand where those mismatches are and how we can actually help people. So one of the things that we do as a business is we make tons and tons of data available constantly. And our, our economist is doing research and publishing that because we want to help try to make labor markets more efficient. The important thing is that we have a view of what people are looking for. We also have a view of what jobs are available. And one of the things that we want to do is to figure out how to help more people understand opportunities that Mm -hmm. they might not be looking for. And we have done a whole lot of work to understand what are the type of people and what type of background make them successful at doing this type of work and how can we put that in front of them as opposed to them just searching for it, but how can we push job opportunities to people that help them learn about things that they didn't know were out there. Chris, we're out of time and it's been a fascinating conversation. Thanks for being here. One Man Brand Radio from News Radio, KLBJ. KLBJ.